Welcome to When We Speak, where we shed stigmas, say goodbye to shame, strengthen ourselves, and encourage others. I am your host, Tasha Hunter. This is a podcast where I am blending the intersections of race, gender, sexuality, faith, and trauma. If there is a topic that most people say we're not supposed to talk about, I'm talking about it because that is how we heal. We don't heal in silence. We heal by speaking out. So on today's episode, I have Faith Brooks, who's been on uh, this podcast before. Lovely, beautiful human. Um, Faith, would you introduce yourself to listeners? Reintroduce yourself. Sure. Hey, everyone. I'm just so excited to be with all of you again um, in your homes, cars, wherever you might be. But um, my name is Faith and I'm a writer. I live in Maryland. I am new to this state, so um, I can't really say I'm a Marylander yet, but I'm enjoying um, this side of the East Coast. And, um, you know, I have been writing since I was a little girl and there was a few things I loved in life and that was writing and I loved people. So I became a social worker and I spent my years blogging and writing on any kind of space, whether that was in my journal or Zanga or MySpace or Tumblr and my own blog. And I just never stopped writing. I would go on and off and but um, I always had something to say. I always had something I wanted to share with the world. So I've been writing all of these years. And a few years ago, I released the Anti-Racism Journal. And then um, I released my debut memoir, Remember Me Now. And it's my own story and um, also a love letter to my sisters and a project that's really close to my heart. So a lot of my life and career has been about justice and people. And, um, I think that's, you know, really my life's work. I, for some reason thought you lived in Atlanta. I did. I used to, I've moved so much. Um, but I used to live in Atlanta and, um, my husband and I, who are newlyweds, um, we kind of decided before we got engaged, like what area would be good to live in. And we, um, picked Maryland. Um, I have my brother here, so we have family and also he, he's in cybersecurity. So it's just a really great area for him too. And we want it somewhere new. This is a neutral, kind of a neutral place for us to be. (laughs) Well, I'll be spending some time in Maryland in the coming months. I've got a wedding that, um, two weddings that I'll be attending in Maryland. So maybe I'll reach out to see if it's possible for us to meet in person or something. Yeah. Yeah. That would be awesome. So regarding your debut memoir, Remember Me Now, I remember what it felt like for each of the books that that I've published to to be out there, what my body has felt like. And so this question is kind of in remembrance of, I guess, the body. You talked a lot about uh, even like your body in the book. And so I'm wondering, how has your body felt after publishing the memoir and and discussing it, promoting it? How, How has your body felt through this process? Oh, that's a good question. I would like to say that my body has felt a number of things, sometimes tense. I tend to carry my 
stress um, in my body and I'm trying to get better at that and not have it just like, you know, live within me um, and just to kind of let that stress out. So here's what I'll say. When I was, it was leading up to the book, I know that like moving my body is such a great stress reliever and it makes me feel better when I do. So I decided to take time to really move my body before I released this book, because I knew for a fact I was going to be stressed. (laughs) And so, and so I took a lot of time to do that. Ironically enough, though, once I got through this really big push of releasing things and interviews and speaking engagements, I crashed hard. And it has been harder for me to get back to moving my body because I feel like I, I put a lot of mental energy into just like, can I just like get through it? Like I just got to get through it. And the only way I know I'm going to get through it is if I work out, I drink my water, I get my head in the game and I can just push my way through. But when I got through, (laughs) it was like, how do I get myself back on track? going and doing and moving for my own benefit. But I have learned to just kind of let my body take its own course because obviously I'm tired. So um, I've been letting myself just kind of rest and rebooting myself mentally and giving myself grace because that's just kind of what I have to, that's just what I have to do, you know, in order to keep moving forward. So reading your book, you know, and and you title it, Remember me now, our journey back to myself and a love letter to Black women. And I wrote, how beautiful, first of all. It it really felt like a love letter to, to Black women, to young Black women who were trying to figure it out, figure all the things out. And it just reading each of your letters, I said, oh, Faith didn't just write this for us. She was writing this to herself, mm-hmm. the memoir, but but it felt deeply resonant, deeply personal in a way that where you you're feeding yourself first and then what's fed you, you're also giving that out to others. It, it, that's the way I received it. Is, is that, was that part of your intention? Yeah. You know, I wanted to write the book that I, I wished I could have read. And at, in every letter I thought of, where I was at mentally and emotionally, personally, or I thought of somebody in my life or conversations I'd had with friends. And those were like the driving forces behind, you know, what I was saying. And, um, you know, my, the first letter that I wrote, I envisioned my niece and she at the time was only three years old, but I just saw such fierceness in her personality. And I remember that about my own self and my own personality and how much work it takes to keep the beauty and tenacity of your boldness. Like as you get older, life tries to take that from you and you have to fight really hard to keep it. And I just wanted that to be there, a reminder to like, don't like give your fierceness, your joy, your light, your strength, don't give that up, you know? And so in every letter, it's, it's my way of engaging, begging, imploring people to, 
see themselves and to hopefully not fall into some of the traps that I found myself falling into mentally, um, questioning myself or not believing in myself, um, not thinking I was beautiful or in all of those types of things, you know? And so it was definitely very, very personal. Um, and I, I hoped that as people read, they felt like we were at coffee together and, um, you know, we, I was just talking to them, just like I'm talking to you. It definitely felt like that. And it also, what kept coming up for me is this felt like, like legacy. Mm. Like the words in here, it's, yeah, it's your story, but it's also, this is what I would want. I have two, I have twin granddaughters. So the, the advice in there, it's, it's for my daughter. It's, it's, it's for my granddaughter. It's one day, but this felt very much like legacy. Mm-hmm. And I would even say, um, I, I tend to kind of go real deep real fast. So <laughs> just in my thinking, um, that's the world in which I live in, but it, so for me, it felt faith, it felt ancestral, mm-hmm. I'm always amazed when I listen to black and brown people, uh, so many beautiful people that are writing books and putting their work out there. There's this ancestral energy of, of it, it wasn't, it didn't feel good. You didn't, you shouldn't have had to go through the things that you went through, but liberation had to come. Mm-hmm. So th- that's really the point. That's what I got from your book is, is yeah, you've got these previous generations and, and they survived in the ways that they knew to survive as Black people, but eventually liberation, true liberation came. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you're the embodiment of that. Does that, is that making sense? Oh yeah. That's making a lot of sense. It's yeah. like, it's really powerful, you know, to hear you say that. I feel like it's, it's powerful and it's affirming. I think one of the hardest things as a writer is you spend so much time with the words and you spend so much time with the words by yourself. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And so it's like, hmm, (laughs) you know, are these, are these words, are these words going to land? And hearing that just means so much to me. My grandmother um, messaged me after finishing the book and she was like, wow, this is beautiful. I am, I saw pieces of myself in you and you had so much courage to tell your story. And then she told me a story about her life and things that happened to her when she was a little black girl, when schools are just being integrated and how, you know, like she hadn't had a chance to share her story, her pain, the things that she went through to call those things out. And somehow in me doing that and me naming that, it was, you know, freeing for her. And I didn't, I mean, I just thanked her and loved on her, but wow, I, I was blown away by that. I just was like, Ooh, is Faith now going to do like a book maybe with mom and grandmother? <laughs> the sharing, yes, you sharing your story is something that, that, that she couldn't have done. Right. Mm-hmm. And here you are able to bear witness to her story. And through you liberating yourself, it's also liberating her. Mm-hmm. That's so beautiful. And 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 I want to because you you brought up your grandmother. I wanted to go um, to a part where you you. So here's what you say, page one hundred three. I have highlighted so much of this book. 
you say we can respect our elders and still have a family conversation about accountability and the ways respectability is hurting young black women. We can lovingly challenge our elders. And so I wanted to know when it comes to family conversations about accountability and respectability, have you been able to have conversations with your family about those two topics? Yeah, I mean, I feel like they've come up really organically just in conversation about, you know, life and the way that they see the world. And um, I'm blessed to have a lot of beautiful women, you know, in my life that are still alive, my grandmothers and, and also, you know, another grandmother from um, my grandfather um, when he um, got not like remarried, but basically they've basically been, she's been his person. (laughs) And so she's been my grandmother. So I have three, I consider myself to have three grandmothers, three women in my life. And, um, you know, they, they have their different ways of seeing the world, all of them very uniquely different. And we've talked about the ways that I see the world. And for them, it's like seeing young people, the, the rage, the, the frustration of, you know, our generation, which existed in theirs too. But for them, it's like, look, we gotta, we can't do those things anymore. We have to, you know, we have to find other ways and, you know, all these things. And I'm not condoning violence, but at the same time, I understand where their fear comes from. It comes from a different place because they also did see and experience a different level of violence than we did. I like to open up conversations with them about this is where the world is now and how I see the world. And I've found that there's so much that I can learn from them. I never want to shut out their experiences, even though they're different, even though they may not, um, yeah, they may not land or resonate in the same, you know, way, if that makes any sense, but I wouldn't be who I am without them. And so I've also heard people say like, we don't need, we don't need the ends to do things like the ancestors. We can do things our own way. Like the old people, they just did what they did. And now we got to move on. And I've always been one to be, to really land in the middle of controversial spaces. I find myself often there um, and not teetering on each side of either extreme. And that's just kind of who I am. And I've just accepted that. And I think that there's something beautiful we can get from our ancestors. There's an endurance they have that we just do not have. And we have to learn how to have it. And there's something we can learn from that. And there's a tenacity within us to challenge systems of power in a very bold way, because we don't have that same level of fear um, inside of us because we haven't experienced the same trauma. And so we do have to reinvent the ways that we engage. Some of the ways that we did things back in the older days, even in the 60s, which really wasn't that long ago. Like, it's just not going to work in 2023. So if we don't evolve, if the movement doesn't evolve, if our fight for equity does not evolve, then, you know, we get stuck and stagnant. And so I think those conversations are really important to me to have with my grandparents. One, so I can listen and shut up sometimes because I need to learn. And then two, so I can offer a different perspective to them. The the circle of, of love and learning that that creates. I mean, the learning, the sitting, the shutting up, right? And learning 
and then imparting your own wisdom, your own. So in your intro, you write, I didn't know that assimilation was poison. I didn't know that assimilation was my way of avoiding the pain of rejection. I eventually learned how assimilation was a betrayal of my community. Oh my goodness. That part gutted me. I was like, oh, she just went there. <laughs> so I want to know, and I think you, you've, you've kind of already named it, you know, in a way, because you were talking, you've been talking about your family. Uh, what does your community, what does that look like for you today? It looks very beautiful, centered, whole and Black. <laughs> you know, there's still, you know, there's still, there's still some, some white folks in there. But the truth of the matter is, is I've shifted my core community, the people that, you know, are right there with me all the time. It's beautiful. It's bold. It's black and it's safe. And that's what I have needed. And it is not a slight to the white folks in my life. You know, I feel like one of the things that I don't love the most is the disclaimers that black people have to give. Like, man, we shouldn't have to give these disclaimers. We're human. You're human. Nobody's asking you why everybody in your picture looks like you. Don't ask me either. So <laughs> I, um, I am grateful to be in this state and in this place, but it has, I have spent years kind of forming new community and friendships. And it hasn't, it was not like this really quick thing. It wasn't like, okay, I'm not going to assimilate and snap at the finger. Now I got all kind of different community. No, it wasn't like that. It took years. It took a lot of cultivating and shifting things. And it also just meant that I stopped putting myself in the position where I was always going to be the only person in the room or one of a few. Ma'am. Yeah. You know, you know how that is. I used to be, I used to gladly step foot in those places being fine. Like I can get along with these people. And the truth is I could still get along with them to this day, but do I want to put myself in the position where I'm the only or one of a few anymore? Absolutely not. I'm just, I just don't have the stamina for it anymore. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. This um, is something that I liberated myself from many years ago because I recognized that I could, I could be friends, just like you said, with anybody. And I wanted my community to be one that was diverse and multicultural. Mm -hmm. But I noticed that in the spaces where I came with that energy, with that intention, that I often found myself as being the one Black friend. Mm -hmm. Oh, you know, I can relate. I was right there with you. <laughs> the one person in the room or at the table or invited to go on the thing. And that started, the more I just became aware of that, now I see that that was just the starting point. The discomfort was the starting point to me meeting myself. Mm-hmm. And so in your book, you have two trips to Rwanda, but it's the second trip where it feels like without you being in community, you wouldn't have been able to really meet faith. Mm -hmm. We can't meet ourselves if we're not in community with each other. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And the thing is, you know, for me, I think something that I realized that I needed was, you know what, I... 
I have these friendships with my white friends and it's cool. You know, those girls that I talk about on uh, the first trip to Rwanda that stood up for me and we're talking, we're still friends and we still talk and I love them so much and I'm so grateful for them. But I realized that I can't just have white friends that I'm close to and feel like I am getting the needs that I I have for community fully met because there is just something about being with all black people. We all get it. It's healing. And I think it's healing because we've all been trained in our lives to fit into this white world, which means we've all done the assimilating. We've all done the fitting and we've all done it. And we want to exist freely with our sisters. And that's what happened for me on that second trip. When I tell you being in Rwanda did something to me, I I may never and probably will never know exactly where my family and ancestral roots are. But to talk about enslavement with my sisters in the village who had no context for Like, how did you get to America? We thought only white people were over there. And for us to talk about being taken from the continent of Africa and our ancestors sold. And that is why we live in the United States to see the tears streaming down their face and to see them say, welcome home. It did something for me. I couldn't go back to a place of not prioritizing my own mental health and sisterhood. I need that. I need that because this world is not going to stop spewing negativity and hate and anti-Blackness, which means I need to protect my own peace and my own story. And there's so much beauty in that. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's been special because over the years I've learned I don't have to assimilate to be accepted and I don't have to assimilate to have friends. And the truth be told, if you are a non-Black person and we're friends, I'm not assimilating to be around you. So if you want to rock with me as I am, cool. If you don't, that's okay too. (laughs) It's all okay. (laughs) Yeah. Do you, right? Exactly. Oh, so so this is a really good segue into my next question because, um, and I love that you named that, that we all, have been really forced to assimilate. Um, it's been a matter of life and death for for our you know prior generations and and even for a lot of us even today. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to know um, at this at this point in your journey, are there ever times in which you you find that a part of you still masks or or performs or you know anything from a position of keeping yourself safe or Mm. helping others to feel, to feel safer in your presence? That is a really good question. I'm sure I still do that to an extent. Um, And I think part of that is probably just baked within me, if you will. Um, And I think, I think the other half of that though, is that this is especially true, like in work, like workspaces. I feel like that's probably where it happens the most for me. Um, But the other part of that, is I'm also still really, you know, bold with what I say. And I don't have a fear of retaliation. I've said things and people have said, oh, aren't you scared? 
And I said, uh, what? No, I'm not. Because the only, the only option is to fire me. And if that happens, then I will just get another job. I, I'm not scared. <laughs> that is it. Yeah. I mean, you know, because I know myself, mm-hmm. I have integrity. I'm not being derogatory. I'm not calling people out of their names and I'm not being rude. I'm just asking questions and, you know, but I am aware of the fact that in doing these things, I could be looked at as aggressive. I could be looked at as an angry black woman. I'm aware that these stereotypes could follow me. And while I prefer them not to, I'm aware that that's a part of what comes with being a, you know, a black woman. And so I think because of that, I am still, I still have that like, part of me that's really conscientious. And I do think that how I show up um, is influenced by, you know, that understanding. I think it will always kind of like be there on my, my shoulder. Um, I think the difference is I know how to navigate it way better than I did when I was younger. Well, you know, reading your book and, and even listening to you today, how it lands in my body is that assimilation can really turn into a superpower because if you've been immersed in white culture, then you kind of know how to exist. You can understand the language. And that kind of is is like this, this secret code to how to take care of yourself in those moments because you know the people, you know the behaviors. And so maybe it's not so much that you are masking or performing or assimilating, but you're using your superpower. Oh my gosh. Yes. I love how you framed that. Yeah. I feel like I definitely feel like I have my, my PhD in, in dealing with, (laughs) dealing with, you know, uh, white folks in these spaces, you know, I'm, I feel well versed. I wanted to talk a little bit about faith. Um, on page 83, you say my job as a social worker changed my faith. And so I wanted to know at this point in your journey, who is God to you today? And and maybe even if you feel comfortable sharing what parts or what beliefs are you still kind of battling with or maybe still processing? Hmm, that's a good question. You know, for me, I I feel like God has always been real to me. And one thing that I know for sure with confidence is that my connection to the divine will always be very special and very healing. God is healing to me. And I know that there's so many different schools of thought and, you know, I've listened to a lot of them. I've processed a lot of where people are with their faith, but I have just experienced such realness and and care when it comes to my connection with God, that I just, I just can't let go of it. Now, like I write about in the book, church people, you can take them or leave them for me. That still remains. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, for me, my, my connection to the divine is, is something that I truly never wanted white people to take away from me. Yeah. I I understand the way the Bible has been like chopped and screwed and made to uphold um, just hatred and evil. I also, you know, resonate deeply with James Cone's 
words of, of liberation and a God of liberation. And that's the God that I feel connected to. I am not a theologian by any stretch of the means. So I, I honestly, if I'm going to be honest with you, I don't think a whole lot about, um, this belief, that belief, this thing, that thing. I just really hold true to what I feel is true to me, which is I feel and believe in God. Then there's like a long litany of this or that, this tradition or that tradition. And I honestly don't really pay attention to too much of it because I just hold true to what feels real to me. I have found whenever I try to dissect all the things, like every single thing that I know and have, and have learned, and trust me, I've evaluated it all, but I have found for me personally, I could spend a lot of time doing that. And my personality, um, I have to really watch myself because I am very justice oriented and I can be get frustrated and, and angry and just fill my head up with, see, they did this wrong and this is wrong and that's wrong. Well, you know what? A lot of stuff was screwed up. I'm aware of that. Like I'm aware of the things that are just absolutely jacked up that people have made faith terrible. I mean, in many ways, when we, I feel personally connected to a God of love and healing and forgiveness and safety, that this punitive version of God um, has never really resonated with me. Me either. And so, yeah, I, I just think the things that feel very punitive and harmful, mean, not gentle, I just don't resonate with those things. And I don't think that I ever will. Mm. That's the best answer I can give. Cause yeah, same, I'm saying, yeah. <laughs> you know, so, so you talked about like the influences of, of James Cone and Renita Wayne's and within the past, maybe month or so it's the third reference to both people so i'm i'm i ordered um a crisis contemplation um so i've ordered the um i can't remember is that james cones or renita weems book I'm, that I'm sounds to... like james cone i haven't heard renita weems be that one um, but I, so I, I've ordered that book. Um, so I read Red Lip Theology by Candace Benbow. And, mm-hmm. and so she had lots of references for her own learning and, and, and evolution and, and everything. And then I interviewed my friend, Dr. Philip Butler, and he referenced James Cone. Mm-hmm. Then I started reading your book and you referenced and I said, okay, I got it. Yeah. James Cone will get you right. I really, I, I, I read, you know, cause when I was having a crisis in my faith and I was like, man, like, can I still rock with God? Like, this is crazy. These people are crazy. I started reading James Cone and I was like, okay, all right. I just didn't listen to the wrong people. <laughs> I just been in the wrong space. <laughs> that was really helpful to my faith. But when I read Renita Weems books, my God, that changed my life in the best way. Showing Mary, when I read it, I was at such a crisis in my life. And that book, I just felt was like water for me in the desert and helped to guide me in so many ways. And then 
I got married and um, the next book of hers that I read was What Matters Most. Wow, so timely (laughs) for where I'm at in life right now. Right now I am reading through her book. Um, I think it's listening for God or listening to God. Some one of those. That's and, the one I ordered. Okay. I haven't read it yet. Yeah. So I'm working oh. through that one um now. So I mean, her words and the way she talks about God and you know how she, you know, explains things, it just felt so poetic and prophetic. And I just resonated with that a lot. And, um, and so I knew for me, like, if I am going to hang on to my faith, I need to have spiritual influences um, coming from black folks. Mm-hmm. I knew that much. I need to change where I was, you know, learning and who I was gleaning from. And that shift has helped, you know, my faith quite a bit. And I know folks that I engaged with when I was in um, a lot of the white evangelical spaces would think that, oh my gosh, she's gone off the deep end, whatever. I have not. I, I feel so grounded. I feel so happy. I feel so free. I feel so whole. And it's because I've really been able to develop this deep and beautiful relationship with God. I felt before, like you got to do 10 steps, this thing, that thing, and the other thing in order to be good and in order to be right, in order to like, that's just too much. It is. It's just too much. How can we, with, with everything going on in life right now, in the term world that exists right now, how can we truly manage all of this stuff, all of these steps, surely, surely God can see and hear me where I'm at, wherever I'm at. And that's what I learned. I can connect with God wherever I'm at, wherever I go. And that, I mean, has just been life-changing for me. You know, hearing where you're at now with faith and just in life in general, although external circumstances have, have made marginalized communities live and exist in a really hard thriving kind of a life. It's, it's mm-hmm. been just so difficult. I do believe in a God that liberates and that offers ease. And it's my belief that, that that is what we've always like. Now there's this term that I keep seeing, which I love called like the soft life. Yes. And, and so I am really calling, you know, to, to God, to my ancestors to show me like, what does it mean to live a softer life? Mm-hmm. And I think that when you can see God through a lens of love, that automatically kind of helps you lean into a softer existence. Yes. You're not feeling bad about yourself and your decisions every day. Yes. Releasing yourself from that, um, that shame, you know what I'm saying? Like that punitive, just, uh, it just feels like so gross to me you know what I'm saying like I I just feel like there's it doesn't feel like there's a lot of freedom and hope in that and you know living in a world that where a lot of despair exists I need love I need peace I need I need it I crave it I desire it and so my hope is that we can find those spaces of softness because 
there's always going to be something happening and I don't have time for my heart, my heart to grow hard. Right. And you know what I mean? There's so many opportunities to make it hard. And I, I still want to keep it soft. Yeah. Right there with you. And so I'm also wondering um, who or what, really the who, who is inspiring your continued learning, your continued liberation? Hmm. I mean, I think I would still say, I I honestly think Renita Weems has been my biggest, biggest inspiration. Um, And also, you know, my grandparents, I, I love that I have grandparents that are still alive that I can engage with. My uh, mom's parents were teen parents, so they're still, you know, going and kicking and around when I'm this age. For some people, they're like, how do you still have, you know, uh, most of your grandparents? Like, well, my, (laughs) my grandparents were teen parents, so that's part of it. But to have them share their lives with me and for me to have the opportunity to gain inspiration from them and courage from them. That keeps me going. I, I feel that I've been um, given a gift, the gift of, of time with them and an opportunity to glean from their wisdom. And that is what's helping to form me into who I am today. That's so beautiful. So before I ask, um, this next question, I want to read one of my favorite parts of your book and it's chapter seven, uh, saying my name. Is it okay if I just read it? Just, Mm -hmm. I just explain that. Okay. So saying my name, you start this chapter with, I love myself. I love myself enough to expose secrets, tell the truth, name what hasn't been named and reclaim what I've lost. I love myself. I love myself enough to be selfish not care what you think, walk away, say no, leave abusive environments and let go. I love myself. I love myself enough to fight for my healing, say what went wrong, forgive myself and rest from the chaos. I love myself. That is certainly my mantra moving forward. (laughs) I just love that it's probably you... I don't know that if if you would call it poetry, but I I called a lot of your writings and in, in your chapters poetry. Um, that's how it landed in my system, and so I'm um, I'm also wondering because this is now your words are my mantra. <laughs> <laughs> what affirmations or mantras kind of kind of repeat in your mind? What are some things that you find yourself repeating um, often. Mm, I love that. I find myself repeating, I'm not too much. I am enough. I can show up just as I am. I am beautiful. I'm not my hair. I am not my weight. Um, These are just like some affirmations that come to mind for me that I typically have flowing in my head. And I've always loved poetry. And I knew that when I wrote this book, I didn't, I, at first I thought I would put quotes from other people before each chapter. And then I started looking through poems I'd already written or poems that were just coming to me. And I said, you know what? I want to write poems before every chapter and letters at the end of each chapter, each poem 
before the chapter is really telling a story and it's talking about where I'm at in that chapter. So in chapter seven, that was a really, you know, defining chapter and that poem I, it was important for me to say to be selfish because I felt like growing up, they tell you, don't be selfish. You need to love other people, show up for other people. And I thought, you know what? I wish somebody would have told me it's okay to be selfish and to get what you need for yourself. Because especially as a black woman, you will spend your time, your energy and your life trying to help everybody else. And it is so easy to neglect yourself. And I really wanted to advocate, drive home, um, that it is okay for us to choose ourselves. We can say no. Hey, I need this from you. No, I cannot give it to you. No, I don't have the emotional capacity. No, I am tired right now. Man, I wish, I wish I was, I was operating in that level of self-assuredness and, and confidence to say no and to not overextend myself. And so writing that poem was really important because it was kind of like putting my stake in the ground. Like mm, what used to fly is not going to fly anymore. Mm. And these are the ways I'm going to show up because I love myself. Um, I don't mean to like add any more work to your plate, but I'm just saying, I felt like your poetry should exist, like also outside in this book, but outside of it, like, like a merch line of, Hey, you know, some wall decor or, you know, the, the letters in my mind, I was like, you know, there was so much that, that you wrote that I just wanted to just like take it and, and put it somewhere, you know, um, you know, putting it in, in, in my daughter's bedroom, uh, giving it as gifts to, to my, my granddaughters. Um, so, so if you just need more work, just let me know. I have lots of ideas. <laughs> um, <laughs> I love it. I love yes. ideas. Um, so I, I just, I loved your book and I'm so proud of you and just, grateful that we got to have this conversation today. And um, if you want to just um, maybe say a few words, let listeners know where they can purchase copies of your book or hear you speak or whatever, you know, you want to share. Well, thank you so much, Tasha, for having me on your podcast. I really enjoyed this conversation and you can find me anywhere on social media at Faith B. My name is spelled with two T's. So um, it's pretty easy to find me. And my website is faithbrooks.com. And if you, um, you know, ever want me to come out and speak, I do that too. And I'm just really excited for creating more communal spaces for Black women. And um, thank you for setting the table for us today to talk. This has been beautiful. And I hope for all of you listening, it's been wonderful for you too. Thank you so much. 
Thank you so much for listening to When We Speak. Follow me on Instagram at Tasha Hunter LCSW. If you haven't done so yet, please rate, review, and follow me on iTunes and share it on your social media. If you want a copy of my book, What Children Remember, it is available on Amazon. Until next time.